Hi, welcome back, everyone, and and uh, happy New Year, happy 2021. We all have our hopes pinned on it that absolutely nothing bad will happen in 2021. We don't care if it's naive. <laughs> um, uh, we're here with a with a shiny, brand new, rebooted film suck, and we bid a fond farewell um, to Evgenia Kovda, who is our our co-host up through December. Um, she had other fish to fry, bigger fish. Um, yeah, she has film projects she really wants to make headway on. Um, so old Lang Syne and all that. But the good news is we now have our fantastic new co-host, Dolores McElroy. And Dolores brings us all the wit and wisdom you can glean from the film and media department at UC Berkeley, <laughs> where we used to toil together, which is how we got to be um, friends. She also brings lots of magical knowledge of stardom and divadom and many other things that we're going to need to thresh out thoroughly um, um, this coming year. Dolores, welcome. Well, thank you, Eileen. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the starry introduction. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and hello, FilmSuck listeners. I've been a devoted listener of FilmSuck, so I'm so honored to be here. And um, just thanks, Evgenia, if you're listening. I'm just such a fan of, of the show. So thank you for all the work you put into it. Um, both of you, um, thank you, Eileen, uh -huh. for inviting me. And like, hell yeah, let's do this. <laughs> yes, this is very exciting. Yeah. All right. Um, let me just lay out, though, there's just a couple of things about the new um, episode format. We've just been drowning you in content and drowning ourselves, you know, do, doing weekly, like two hours plus <laughs> um, episodes, and it just cannot go on. It's madness. We thought you'd all rise in mass protest and somehow you endured it. But um, we're going back to what we had initially started with, which is an episode every other week with one tricky exception. We're going to do this um, episode coming out tomorrow, uh, January 3rd, and then the following week on the 10th, we're going to do a second one. That's partly because it fits in nicely with Dolores' winter yeah. break, but also because we really would like to um, talk about a new documentary by Martin Scorsese that's coming out, and it's premiering on the 8th of January on Netflix, um, and it's called, um, think of it, what is it, think of it as a city? No, pretend it's a city. Um, and it's about Fran Lebowitz, kind of public wit, wit and essayist um, um, in a way that puts her in direct lineage with Oscar Wilde, which is, is our topic for today. Um, and it's interesting to note that Scorsese already did uh, an, a, a first documentary on Fran Lebowitz called Public Speaking in 2010. So that's amazing to devote you know, a top filmmaker to devote two documentaries to a public figure is pretty wild. So we're very eager to, to cover that. So again, that's how it's going to work. It's going to be uh, episode on the third, episode coming out on the 10th. And then the next one will be two weeks later um, on the 24th. And then thereafter, every other week for, for, from here to eternity. Um, <laughs> but I should say on the alternate weeks, you won't be bereft of content. I'm going to start writing um, short reviews, short blasts of film commentary, mainly out of a certain level of frustration. I love writing for Jackman Magazine. It's marvelous and for other magazines. But there is a certain kind of magazine writing that's very smooth and professional. <laughs> and I'm sick of being smooth and professional. <laughs> I would like to rant a little more and use more punctuation and stuff that always gets some um, and be funnier. And all that stuff tends to get smoothed over and edited out. So I'm going to give you the raw unvarnished and God help us all um, every other week. Um, so that's the plan for the new format and just consult the Patreon site for film suck for, for, you know, confirmation and for any further details before, cause now we want to get into Oscar Wilde. We can't spend all our time 
introducing ourselves and the and the new the new format. Um, getting into Oscar, how do we get to, how do we get to Oscar Wilde when we want to rant about film? Is is an interesting point, especially for our first um, episode of twenty twenty one. Um, maybe let's do background first of how we, how we got here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like Eileen, it's, uh, you know, wild is the place in so many ways where our aesthetics meet, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, he, he's just like the, the heart of so many, uh, or he expresses so well, so many of the frustrations that I feel like we both have with contemporary media, um, mm-hmm. But I will let you take it away. <laughs> well, yes, and 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 maybe one way to kind of convey the frustration is <laughs> is Dolores sent me sent me some sections of an essay by by Wild on um, the soul of man under under socialism, and more of that later. Just long quotes on you know aesthetics, self actualization, shall we call it, and you know the the potential of individual life under socialism. And it literally helped prevent me committing suicide as I was teaching to the point that I was ready to die. And, and everything seemed so bereft of color or interest just in terms of art and culture. And it even seems weird to, I think it's important to the, to the wild notion that even saying art or being interested in art seems embarrassing. Exactly. Right. And it's, you know, it's so this is a hallmark of Oscar Wilde as the most mm-hmm. modern of thinkers, because he's, uh, you know, thinking and writing at a time when uh, during the decadence movement and, you know, their slogan mm-hmm. is art for art's sake. And mm-hmm. it's a it's a product of, um, you know, obviously romanticism and the shifting role of art after the Renaissance, because art is no longer tied to religion. So mm-hmm. what is it? It, you know, it's seen, mm-hmm. is it just decoration? Um, and the kind of genius of the decadence movement is to, you know, in a very Wildean way, this is an Oscar Wilde line to say all art should be useless. And it, mm-hmm. it's kind of an F you to, um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to the idea that art should be edifying. Um, it's also kind of a refreshing counter to the industrial revolution and the idea mm-hmm. that, you know, time and everything you consume, including art, should be productive in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so Wilde and his friends are saying like, oh, absolutely not. Um, mm-hmm. But the question is, well, then what what is art? What is it for? <laughs> what, you know, I right. don't know how to answer that. Um, and neither does he really. Um, Except but- it seems to be a big part of this idea of, you know, you must, um, you must throw yourself into the world of pleasure. Yes. Um, you know, that whole idea of art as being all about its moral precepts. We suffer horribly from that now. <laughs> I mean, we are in a world where if you make a movie about what, I don't know, the Holocaust or child molestation or some other absolutely terrible and real problem in the world, it doesn't matter how bad the film itself is. It yeah. must be treated with this great, you know, kid gloves <laughs> respect by all the critics who fall into line. So we've got this strange conflation right now, I think, it, of of kind of morals, ethics, you know, current cultural obsessions all imposed upon what we're looking at in a way that really denies pleasure. You you almost can't admit that it matters, <laughs> yeah, that, is, that you should. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, it is so true. And it's so true of, um, yeah, there's a, there's a very depressing realism and literalism. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it, it, what, what so many, you know, theorists of all persuasions, including political theorists have such a problem with is the, is the idea of pleasure, as you say. And we forget 
how much beauty uh, which is a very outdated concept. How yes. Beauty. <laughs> can... We feel embarrassed saying beauty too. Isn't that telling? <laughs> Don't, I yeah, go blush when you say it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, beauty can, it kind of opens the mind for possibility, you know? I mean, in so many ways, it's a very similar operation to taking mind expanding drugs. You know, mm-hmm. if your senses are awakened in certain ways, it makes you more alive. It makes you, it makes the possibilities of what life could be widen. And if that's mm-hmm. not political, I don't know what is. And it's, you know, basically the idea like life could be otherwise. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to just be about the daily ju- drudgery of work or, you know, a sort of very literal ideology or political bent. And, um, you know, that's downright magical. And we just don't have a lot of language to talk about that. And it seems especially crucial now, because again, joining it to the political and just looking at the desolation of our, especially our cinematic landscape when it comes to trying to have, there is no attempt as far as I can see to try to have a political impact on the left. It's it's so minimal. It it literally is. It's and it's very literal minded. It's, it's it tends to be. We're now going to make a movie called Young Karl Marx. We're yeah. now going to make a movie called you know about Harriet Tubman. We're now going to make a movie, and that's what you tend to get excited about if you can get excited about anything. Is oh, at least the subject matter is about mm-hmm. something that has political meaning on the left. But the the inability to harness the power of cinema and mass media. When so many other, well, there weren't that many, but the, what the, the <laughs> crucial movements on the left, the, the socialist and communist movements that succeeded, that's that was crucial to the movements. Mm-hmm. You know, Cuba's film industry is the first. That's the first thing they set up after after Fidel Castro comes into power. That's right. they're like they're aware of the important third cinema is going to be be absolutely a vital aspect of of the the you know the utopian hope that we're going to have um a li- you know a militant liberation movement from the left on three continents yeah. um and obviously with the um um Russian revolution and the immediate establishment of a state film school and the embrace um on the part of the soviets of cinema as the most important of of the arts um politically important and formally the way they devised ways they felt to create and maintain revolutionary subjects through the use of editing through montage mm-hmm. all of these exciting things were happening that helped enliven people make them want to be part of a, a mass movement and it's exactly what we do not have now and it and again it's a, it's faded into one of those areas of semi embarrassment when you yeah. try to even bring up the idea that we'd harness mass media it's like you can feel everyone shrink as if to say, wow, that's so 1930s. <laughs> and, I, you know, I'm so struck by uh, you. have uh, You wrote a wonderful piece for Jacobin a while ago about the way that people who want to make cinema that will change the world have seemed to mm-hmm. have abandoned the idea of form in favor mm-hmm. of content entirely. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, in, yes. you know, where. So uh, in the 20s and 30s, the Soviets had enough respect for their people to think that Mm -hmm. they could get into something uh, as abstract as montage, which is not a literal, um, it's not a literal form. You know, yes, sometimes these stories are about revolution or, you know, Mm -hmm. these, as in the case of Potemkin, sometimes they're not, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. they're like city symphonies, um, 
you know, by uh, Zygavertov or whatever. Uh, but just the idea that you would have enough confidence in your people mm-hmm. to give them right. the best <laughs> and think mm-hmm. that they could sort of rise to the occasion of appreciating it. Um, that's very different from now when we seem to dumb everything down to deliver the most sort of like simplified, simplistic, mm-hmm. um, dumbest of messages in the, mm-hmm. you know, in the most obvious way. So there's a, it, you know, the, the idea of form versus content is, um, mm-hmm. is super interesting because we seem to have abandoned experiments with form altogether. <laughs> so, And even on the, uh, the understanding that absolutely the Soviets had, um, for sure, that the form itself would be the power driver of the thing, that it would be the, the impact of the editing. Mm-hmm. on your emotions and on your intellect that would revolutionize you. I can't tell you how many times I've had to explain this to people and they just can't wrap their heads around it because we don't do it anymore. We don't, we don't believe in it. We don't understand. How could the form do anything to you? <laughs> Mentally or emotionally, and you're like, it, it is all the time. We've just settled for a kind of dull, you know, default kind of, um, uh, what, um, classical cinema um, set of forms that we don't even recognize as forms because we regard them as practically as natural as trees growing out in the earth. You know, you know the, the everyone thinks oh, go ahead. continuity editing like evolved yes. out of the human mind. You know, like <laughs> yes. I don't know, like in a Darwinian way, and it's like no, these are a right. series of choices, and you've been trained to understand them. You know, exactly. Yes. So now you think it's a mistake. <laughs> If the editing doesn't flow in such a way as just to sort of drag you along yeah. along with it in this kind of, in a way that the, the great Soviet directors scorned. God, Eisenstein on, oh, duh, I put one thing, I put A next to B and then C. You just start utter contempt for the, for the idea that that's all you were so that it could follow logically in the narrative. Um, there, That was, you know, for, uh, I don't even want to insult chimpanzees by saying chimp level, but very low level, the rock bottom basics. From there, you take off into much more ambitious filmmaking. Mm-hmm. So... So yeah, so so you know it's it's a it's a long way around dragging us back to wild and and aesthetics and trying to find someone who's a true modernist who seems to have ideas that can apply directly to cinema, even though what he dies what five years after I think three years after I think um, the official birth of cinema. Yeah, five five years, right? It's kind five of years, like, is it? Yeah, there. I think there's like a delicious irony. I think he goes into Reading Jail in 1895, the same year that the train pulls into the station. Right, the the station, (laughs) the Lumiere Brothers, and the official birth of cinema. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yes, and then you know he's in Paris in in you know around 1900. So one wonders Mm -hmm. about his movie going. Um, Personally, I've never read anything about it, although I'd be interested to know. Yes, one longs to to picture him <laughs> going in, and one thinks he would be delighted. And why do we think he would be delighted? I think because there was something so fantastical about cinema, even as people were kind of marveling at, you know, if you know your Lumiere Brothers films, you know, uh, what, you know, the workers leaving the factory and going, mm-hmm. oh my God, that's us. But someone more perceptive, like uh, the Soviet writer Max, Max Gorky, said, oh my God, why do people even like this? It's so eerie. We're, we're all turned into these floaty ghosts that have no material reality. It's like the it's like a, a dance of death or something. I mean, he wrote very evocatively about how, in fact, super strange it was. While so many other people were like going, "I can see human beings move," sort of like human beings move. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that quality of taking 
elements of reality and transforming it into the fantastical is central to to Wilde's you know definition mm-hmm. of what art should be doing. It should have a very, very so somewhat removed relationship to nature and quote unquote real life. Absolutely, and you know this relates to. Um... Oh God! Is it, it's Walter Benjamin again, right? And he, um, yeah, <laughs> who writes about cinema? Who, by the way, hated art for art's sake. And maybe we can devote another episode to the history behind that lineage. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and I really think yeah. it's Walter Benjamin's fault that we are suspicious of the decadence movement. But you uh-huh. know, that's another episode, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but anyway, but you know, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm a fan. I like Walter Benjamin. So anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's that absolutely, wonderful. yeah. <laughs> but it's that wonderful notion of what what Benjamin calls the optical unconscious that film can mm-hmm. reveal. And in highlighting certain objects that we simply don't, we aren't able to see that closely to be literal about it (laughs) in real life Mm -hmm. or real life just doesn't afford us the chance to stop and stare. It, you Mm -hmm. know, it's first it's impolite to stare at other human beings in real life for that long, unless they're on Mm -hmm. a stage. (laughs) You also, Mm -hmm. you know, you, it's just about sort of the opportunity to slow down. And as you say, to, you know, to make the familiar strange is the wonderful Mm -hmm. thing that, that film can do. Um, and I've, and yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, just that wild, of course, would, would, I think we think kind of love the transporting qualities. Not, you know, Stanley Cavell argues in in the worldview that that, that ability to slow down life, separate it. And he, he even talked about, you literally take a piece out, abstract it out and he he said that's what makes film inherently philosophical it allows you to look at aspects of life transformed in a way that you can then think about life but i think the transformative and the transcending effects would especially have thrilled wild um who was also in in, so invested in the idea of self-transcendent self-transformation self well even self-definition because he wasn't so sure that there was such a thing. In fact, he rejected the idea of the authentic self, yeah, which makes him very, very modernist and one of us indeed. It, indeed. And, it, and I love, you know, the soul of man under socialism, I mm-hmm. think is the only socialist track that's concerned with the soul. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so amazing. Even the title just makes you go, what? <laughs> Wild's genius is for holding together these seemingly antithetical things and showing that they're not really antithetical after Mm -hmm. all. And so you may I segue into the thing that you're well, the piece that you're working on for Jack, your manifesto. Yes, (laughs) Yes, they're actually letting me do this. I pitched them that I would first I checked to see if anyone had written about Oscar Wilde's Soul of Man Under Socialism and absolutely not. So so I offered myself why they accepted this. I don't know, since, you know, I write about film, but they did. Thank God. So I am now deep in the weeds of of the world of Oscar Wilde. And there's so much material I'm, I'm frankly drowning because I want to do it justice. It, it, it's so this. These were the passages again, some of the passages that Del- Dolores sent me. And then she sent you made me a, a gift of the book, a, a lovely uh, vintage copy of the book. And it's it's been a matter of obsession because it does so many things. Not only does it put soul in the title and make soul the central central <laughs> um, aspect of this new socialism but it talks about how you as a the how individualism will flourish you as an individual will flourish in a way that you couldn't in any other system well that's so amazing because again the whole notion of you know the, uh, you know this obsession with the individual that's especially central to american ideology 
has been so often completely dismissed as that's the bourgeois, you know, trap and construct of all time. It prevents people from being able to think of themselves in collective terms and, you know, embrace solidarity and all of these other concepts. And he goes right for it in a way that seems absolutely made to appeal to Americans, if not, well, if not a lot of people who get exhausted with the idea of trying to wrap their heads around a, a lot of the, uh, socialist Marxist theory. It can be very, you know, many, many people have talked especially about how in America you're just not going to, you're just not going to get it. We are all so super brainwashed um, to think of ourselves in certain ways that are going to preclude our ability to become socialist communists. Um, yeah, history seems to bear this out somewhat. But here he goes right for, you know, what we think of as our province, which is I need to I need to thoroughly realize myself as an individual. And I believe democracy and capitalism are going to get me there. And and Wilde comes at it just just blandly as if it were obvious, as he does so many things where he's challenging <laughs> accepted thinking and goes right for no, no, the flourishing will be under socialism. That is a beautiful thing. Yes, he, sa he says, you know, uh, people are burdened by private property. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, half the time, I think he's talking about, you know, aristocrats I know. <laughs> but <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> Masses of contradictions. We have to acknowledge those from the outset. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, he has like, very, like, wonderful lines in there about how it's, um, you know, it's uh, if if a poor man steals, then there must be mm -hmm. something very fine in him. Because yes. he's not content to accept his lot, right? You know, right? And and the, the yeah, the horror of 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 what um, the poor having accepted the idea that they should be grateful for crumbs and for charity. He's death on charity mm -hmm. as just a ruinous practice that's a sop to the existing system and does nothing to address the root problem. Which I think obviously there's vast agreement on that mm -hmm. um, on that one. Um, so yeah, he's, he's so many ideas. You know, you've got to transform um, private property into public held in common. You've got to get people out of wage slavery. And for this, he loves the new machine age, the Industrial Revolution. He says the whole benefit is that is we're going to have machines that will do the kind of labor that no one is go ever going to choose to do. He wants everybody out of that trap. He, of course, is he is he detailed? Is he in, you know? Is he well versed in you know economics? Is he no? He he's simply he's doing a kind of utopian vision, which I think, frankly, we need as much as we're suspicious of utopias. Absolutely. Um, I think part of the problem, the blo biggest blockage, and you know this gets talked about a lot, is people can't envision it. They can't envision how this works out well for us. Exactly. Um, yes. How do I get what I want in this new world you're envisioning? And here he's trying to lay it out in the most gorgeous terms. And that makes it very exciting to read. Yeah, absolutely. And, the, you know, I mean, there's still, as ever with Wilde, which personally, this is, you know, I'm attracted to this and I kind of respect it. He to him, not everyone will become an artist. You know, some people will sort of still be basic and some people <laughs> to realize some really marvelous things. And I, uh -huh. to me, this reads is true. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I kind of respect him for his refusal to, um, you know, he does not see the spark of genius in everyone. And, you know, mm -hmm. frankly, neither do I. <laughs> mm -hmm, right. and, um, it doesn't mean that, um, I, I don't, it, you know, that not everyone's need, needs should be met. 
it, it mm-hmm. doesn't mean that just because you're not extraordinary, you don't deserve to live in, you know, in a beautiful mm-hmm. place with beautiful surroundings. Um, mm-hmm. It is kind of like the, the radical idea that everyone deserves beauty and, right. you know, and, and comfort. And with that established, then the sort of uh, best will be able to, you know, do what they were born to do regardless mm-hmm. of what circumstances they were born into. Cause all the circumstances will be like extremely decent. <laughs> so well, and he does, you know, the most hopeful things he does seem to indicate that if your individuality was allowed to completely flourish, that you would become extraordinary in some fashion. No, you yeah. wouldn't be what he considers the most extraordinary thing, which is an artist and a genius like himself. Right. <laughs> um, but just the very flourishing of your individuality mm-hmm. will be extraordinary. Um, and we don't even, we can't even get near that. I mean, in America, there's this constant rhetoric that has always been manifestly, manifestly untrue that people are real, that any kind of majority of people are going to be able to realize. In fact, Mark Twain was writing in, you know, the 1800s about the disease of conformity in America being worse than any other place at the very site of where we're supposed to all be developing ourselves as individuals and have the freedom to do so. He's just like, oh, bull. It just doesn't happen. In fact, we seem to go exactly the opposite way and desperately conform, presumably because just to get along in the world at almost all levels, maybe you can at the very richest. But he's even looking at at wealth and going, no, you see the same syndrome. We're terrified to be individuals. And there's aspects of our society that seem to crush individuality. And here you've got Wilde coming along saying, I have the answer, America or everywhere. It's socialism. It's it's so true. And, you know, I, th- I do think there's something in there tied into the American suspicion of art. Because, yeah. you know, in America, we don't you don't praise children for being unique or odd or having artistic <laughs> vision. You know, I mean, well, in, in co- the contemporary moment, I mean, there aren't any there are barely any programs in the school mm-hmm. for people to even be artistic. So, you know, mm-hmm. that help that happens elsewhere. But um, yeah, we're not a culture that values any kind of um, free free expression of the individual. We we value free expression, so we say on some like big abstract level. But in daily practice, you know, as as Twain noted, it's the most mm. numbingly conformist of cultures, and it it demands you not be too big for your britches. You know. Yes, and of course, there's so much that's fear based. What's going to become of the true? eccentric individual and often the answer is nothing good so so parents i think if they start seeing that developing in their kids start absolutely worrying and going are you sure are you sure you don't want to be a pharmacist you know isn't there some way (laughs) you don't live in you know a country like germany that has like wide funding for the arts you know if your kid grows up to be an artist well it's gonna be a long hard road they're not wrong you know (laughs) yes the system is not there in any sort of support so yeah so yes so, yeah. And, and of course, you know, working on this project has really has really made me conscious of there's something so freeing in reading someone who feels free in language. And that's I don't even know how to address that one. Um, it's very hard for for most people to even feel free enough to say, what do, what do I want? If we got socialism, what would I want from so- like people can't even picture it, much less write about it. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it's become its own what um 
hyper theorized field to the point that people are afraid to even put a toe in. I mean, when you join something like Democratic Socialists of America or or almost any other, in fact, in the old days, ISO, any of the groups, as far as I can tell, you're immediately told to join a reading group and you're assigned 25, you know, basic texts that's half price off at Verso. Yeah. And so everyone wades into this world timidly many. There's a few avid souls and that's great. We need you. But there's so many people who, A, don't feel up to doing it, don't want to do it, and literally don't want to do it. I mean, the vast majority of people I know that I would love to persuade, and I'm having no luck, by the way, (laughs) um, to join, to become a socialist, to join DSA, to come over to a movement, whatever, uh, are the very people who are never going to do that reading. They're never going to wade into the theory. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen. And so how we make this... You know, again, film used to be something that people reverted to. You know, there were nations that, you know, Cuba, aware that there's a high or or the Soviet Union, high, high levels of illiteracy, for example. So not only do you set up a literacy program, you also start making films that people can watch and understand that tell them this is your actual history. Mm -hmm. This is what we're actually about. This is what we're after. And it's in an exciting form that people can embrace and and be thrilled and say, now I see it. You just showed it to me. I mean, literally some of the editing systems that Vertov came up with, Chiga Vertov, were to show you, look how malleable the world is. I'm taking re- what appears to be reality, street scenes, and I'm mushing them together <laughs> and I'm bending them and I'm twisting them. And it's all working at a kind of metaphoric level to say the world is more malleable than you know. Mm-hmm. We just have to look at it that way. We can make it over. Mm-hmm. And and Wild has he just you know never a crisis of confidence with with Wild at least before they break him in prison, um, he he writes like who who better than me to articulate how gorgeous life could be mm-hmm. under socialism, and, then, and he's not worried about what he doesn't know or you know he's not a political theorist he's not an economic theorist he's clearly is completely unconcerned by that absolutely and I mean I think he would be behind the project of the well I don't think it was a conscious project of the movies if we if we're mm-hmm. you know when I say the movies I, I'm what I really mean is like the golden age mm-hmm. of Hollywood I mean when the movies were good in the mid 20th century in the early 20th century and mm-hmm. I think you know Eileen you've written about this before um mm-hmm. the movies are this I, I, I are something that Wilde did not imagine in that they are they speak on every level they're a mass art form that appeals to the most you know the broadest most popular base they're widely mm-hmm. understandable by anyone they're joyful and they also illustrate this possibility for new ways of being new. It, they were excited mm-hmm. about modernity as wild was. They were excited about industrialization. They had an mm-hmm. optimistic view of what the world could be. Now we've mm-hmm. been through a lot since then. <laughs> right. Right. There are reasons to be cynical, but there are still reasons to be optimistic. It's not that we don't have the actual tools to make the world a better place. We do. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. You know, and at one time in our history, the movies were able to convey these possibilities. And mm-hmm. you, I'm just going to, this will be me just summarizing your work for the whole episode. But <laughs> <laughs> thank you for doing that. Yeah, I couldn't probably. <laughs> I mean, you wrote that wonderful piece for, was it the opening of your film? Was it the introduction to your book, Film Suck? Where you oh, talk, Film Suck, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where you talk about happy modernism. Right, right. Yes. Right? And yeah. Then, and isn't isn't the argument of happy modernism that 
you know, the movies were able to illustrate a sort of optimistic, um, I don't know, view of, of the possibilities for human society. <laughs> yes, ab- absolutely. And especially the, the early, early movies. And, and I make claims that are, you know, controversial about how it was such a worker cinema at first because it was a disreputable form. So you had a lot of working class people running the movies in the movie, performing in the movies and watching the movies. You had a real working class circuit and it was all so exciting and thrilling. And uh, there's a vast amount of inclusion of all the latest, you know, most exciting aspects of modernity. So trains, that train internally coming into the station that people found incredibly exciting to watch. It's very Mm -hmm. hard to convey it now. But that was literally a mini genre. <laughs> they made so many of those damn things. And, and, and then you move on into slapstick comedy and, and the, the exciting adventure serials. And they're built around so many of them. Um, <laughs> challenging, you know, new modes of transportation, challenging modes, uh, new modes of communication. And they build them right into the plots and make them look hilarious and wonderful. Sure, shocking and jolting and kind of with an edge of danger mm-hmm. but so exciting it was so wonderful to be part of a of a world on the move um that yes that i think it was a whole way of conceiving of yourself is yes we are in this world that we're imagining we're imagining and doing almost faster than we ourselves can keep up with in fact there's a there's a great analysis of a serial called hazards of helen which is exactly that We've come up with all these amazing machines and they're all apt to break down because they've gotten so complex in their interactions with humanity, et cetera, and, and just machinery technology that they're constantly breaking down. And Helen's whole job is to constantly be stopping the trains from crashing <laughs> or, or whatever, you know, and she has to ride 50 different vehicles, you know, you know, and do a million dare, daredevil stunts to, to do that, mm-hmm. to deal with the, the problems that are inevitably, go, in, in, inevitably going to crop up as we do all of this revolutionary stuff very, very fast. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and Buster Keaton, I t- just took as the model of, he's the happiest modernist in the 1920s. He loves machinery. He loves mass everything, mass transit, mass, <laughs> mass everything. And he's out there. And even if he's, he's, again, he's always at risk, but in a way that makes you feel just delight and love. And he loved, he loved everything, but he loved the camera. He loved the camera as a technological object. Mm-hmm. He literally met his first camera, took it apart, to see how it all worked and put it all back together again and started designing, redesigning all of his comedy for camera. So he had a kind of fourth grade education, but total genius about modernity, how it's working and how it's going to be affecting us. And for him, it was all exciting. It was all wonderful. And admittedly, that's hard to keep that pitch of excitement as consequences occur and you start getting dragged down by them. And certainly we can't get much more dragged down by consequences than we are maybe right now. No. I I say that because again, I'm determined nothing bad is going to happen right now um, in 2021. So we're going to stop here at the peak point or, or at the lowest point of um, discouragement and a feeling like there's nothing we can do. We are stuck. But I really believe we're not harnessing potential power. And one of the potential powers is, is media, is cinema, um, to try to show us how the world is still malleable, the world can still be worked on. Yeah. And we can use the form and we can u- we need a new way of thinking of ourselves and we don't have it. Yes. So much more persuasive than theory. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> yes, theory is just not going to reach 
the vast majority of people. Unless maybe if you try to embed it in film form, which is literally what people like Eisenstein did. They're like, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. They built it into the editing scheme. (laughs) So if you couldn't do it, get it through reading, you could feel it in your bot working on your body through film. That's how radical they, they wanted to be. We have nothing like that kind of ambition of thinking. And yet we've got digital cinema, which arguably could do 50 million times more things. There's, it's so manipulable and we just aren't taking advantage of it. Most, most uses of digital are so boring. It's so true. It's so true. Yeah. You know, to play devil's advocate, and I have a feeling we'll yeah. return to this throughout the, throughout the show, is mm-hmm. that, you know, You've got to wonder, all right, so in Eisensteinian Soviet montage, um, mm-hmm. yeah, some Marxist dialectics might be built into it. Might the- be built into it, yes. But are people getting this? Are you really like receiving Marxist thought through osmosis, through you know, watching Battleship Potemkin? Like, I, you know, I, I have my doubts. And certainly, <laughs> you know, the Soviets after Lenin died, you know, the, the Soviet government certainly doesn't that think so. <laughs> and that's one of their main complaints about the montage movement. Look, this is this is so esoteric and over the heads of the populace that this is in fact, you know, this is, you know, counter-revolutionary propaganda and no wonder it's been a lot it's allied allied with all these like western decadent art movements because mm-hmm. it's so that's way that you know you wind up with socialist realism yep. and they literally outlaw the montage. <laughs> the montage effects is just being too highfalutin and over the heads of everybody and not, and there's no way they can work. There's no way. But, you know, keep in mind, Eisenstein was already trying to do it in the theater. He was already doing agitprop prop theater. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to build in systems of shocks. Like suddenly in the middle of a dramatic scene, somebody would do an acrobatic flip. Somebody would do a pratfalls. He was trying, he was experiment. He finally gave it up because he felt film was more promising mm-hmm. as a way through shocks and jolts, which again, tended to be the way people characterize modernity, right. um, to almost tenderize people <laughs> to be to be ready for the huge social transformation. You know, there's way more I'm, theoretical, theoretically, to how he thought this was going to actually work. It's but the, the idea of we have to experiment and try has always been the most thrilling thing about these movements. Third cinema, the, there are manifestos that say we don't know how to make these new films. We have no idea. We just have to, we have to improvise them all and they're all, they're going to be deliberately rough. We're rejecting the Hollywood model of smooth, slick, professionalized, all that. These are going to be rough, tough, you know, who knows how erratic and we're experimenting all the way because we have to, we're experimenting on a new society, a new idea of society. Yes. And I mean, isn't it true? Like every time a movement abandons that kind of experimentation and becomes suspicious of art as Mm -hmm. too artsy, as, um, something that the average person can't understand, mm-hmm. then it starts to, you know, betray itself. It goes into authoritarianism, into the worst kind of populism, mm-hmm. and then it ends up being screwed. You know, then you get Stalinist social socialist realism. Socialist realism, which, you know, there's an occasional good one, but much of it is like, wow. <laughs> it's so limited and, yeah. and ending. Yeah. Tractor, tractor <laughs> yeah. musicals. I mean, not that I don't love a good Soviet tractor musical. There could be occasionally yeah. something really fascinating. Yes. <laughs> but it's mostly a bunch of garbage. And, <laughs> and it's mostly lessons. It's, it's again, lessons in how to be a better communist. And, you know, exactly. maybe you're going to get an appearance from a Stalin impersonator at the end to bless you <laughs> and stuff like that, which is kind of fun. But it's a very limited uh, vision of, and again, it's condescending. We have to teach the peasants, you know, exactly. the peasants and soldiers and so forth, and they don't get it. So 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The moment you start condescending to people, I think, you know, that's the moment that it all goes south. And as Oscar said, the worst art is always done with the best intentions. <laughs> right. As one of his best lines. <laughs> and so true. My God. Anytime you read an appalling poem, you're like, oh yeah, best intentions at work here. <laughs> Which is, okay. So it might be a good way to segue into our discussion of the picture of Dorian Gray from 1985. Yes. Um, and you know, one wonders I, what are the intentions of this film? I don't even know. It just gets to be its, you know, its odd decadent self. Um, yeah. I'm- and I, let me tell the Herd Hatfield story. Herd Hatfield is the actor who plays Dorian Gray and it's a, should be a star making role. I, he expected it to be, but he wound up with very mixed feelings about it because he said it's so bothered people. <laughs> it was too avant-garde. It was, it was too daring in terms of as he very sweetly put it you know hinting at bisexuality is how he put um <laughs> you know the 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 the, the extravagance of so-called sinning of dorian gray um and but the overall impact of the film was to so weird people out he said i literally couldn't get people to have lunch with me they were so freaked out by me Right. Having having been in this film that it wound up not really doing what he what he had hoped. And when you watch it, you're like, he's right. There are all all, there's all this for as much as you can see, kind of we'll get into some of the funnier, you know, adaptation moves they make to to make it work more conventionally. Mm -hmm. There's something so freaky and wonderful about this film and, and daring that you have to pay tribute to it. It's yeah, it's the best. I should should I give everyone just like a little overview of what Definitely. Okay. So the picture of Dorian Gray um is based on Oscar Wilde's only novel, uh written in 1890. And this uh, it's been adapted many times for the screen. Um the version that Eileen and I like best is the 1945 MGM film directed by Albert Lewin, uh an old movie veteran, an old veteran by that time. Uh, starring George Sanders, uh, who you might know from All About Eve. He's Addison DeWitt. Addison DeWitt. <laughs> <laughs> He's very Addison DeWitt-like as Lord Henry mm-hmm. in the film. And I heard Hatfield, um, who Eileen was just talking about, is the very like smooth-faced young... Is he a British actor, Eileen? Who plays Dorian? No, I think he's American. But he has a kind of indeterminate quality to him. He's got that kind of mid-Atlantic accent, but his whole affect is like, where is the who what is this guy? Who's which is very effective. What a bizarre name. <laughs> I know, even his name is crazy. Let me make sure. Now it's, now you've now you've worried me. While you're talking, I'm gonna look him up oh, no, and make okay. sure. I'm on really... Wikipedia, you're right. He was born in New York City. Okay, go. Shoo. Yes. <laughs> And and this film is it's shot in black and white, mm-hmm. you know, nineteen forty five drama. But they they do feature the painting. I don't know if we're there yet. In uh, the so the story of picture of Dorian Gray is that Dorian Gray is a beautiful young man. Um, it's it's set in the eighteen nineties, and mm-hmm. uh, a painter paints his portrait. And Dorian is so taken with his you know beautiful youthful image mm-hmm. that he sort of makes a wish to remain young forever and let the picture do his aging for him. And in fact, and he's in, yes. Yeah. Okay. okay go ahead. And that in fact takes it, it works. And, but he's encouraged in that by Lord Henry, who's this ultra, what, how do we put it? <laughs> you know, ultra sim- cynical epigram spewing <laughs> um, <laughs> um, aristocrat who 
who tells Dory and all these intoxicating things about, you know, the most important thing in the world is youth and you know, and youth and beauty essentially, and you have it, but you'll only have it a tiny short time. Don't be afraid of anything mm -hmm. and encourages him toward all pleasurable experiences without, without restraint. Right. So, so Dorian becomes a hedonist and, you know, mm -hmm. along the way, as, as one, one goes around hedonizing, <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he gets a lot of other people in trouble and ruins a lot of lives. And mm -hmm. so he remains young and beautiful for decades, but the, but the portrait ages and it shows mm -hmm. all his decrepitude and, you know, moral decay um and, and and beyond this it's like it's syphilitic eruptions he becomes more monstrous than mere aging can, can account for all the sin is is almost bursting out of his flesh in a in an ultra what you know semi-monstrous manner that makes the portrait actually oh, oh just it's a wonderful painting by what's his name ivan albright ivan albright yes yeah and if you've ever been to the Art Institute of Chicago, I guess mm -hmm. it's there. I, I'm, it's displayed there, yes. I can't believe I'm, you know, I'm from the Chicago area. I grew up there. And I, in researching the episode, I remembered mm -hmm. Ivan Albright did this painting I was obsessed with as a kid. It's called mm -hmm. Into the World There Came a Soul Called Ida. Oh my God. It's, Even the name is great. <laughs> you know, I, cause I was a huge Tennessee Williams fan as a child, which explains a lot uh, about me. Of and course. Then, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, it's a very Tennessee Williams line. I thought, and, uh -huh. and the painting itself is of the, this woman sitting at her vanity table and she's, you know, she's a little over the hill and she's got a mirror and her, a hand mirror and a, and a powder puff and all of her sort of, sort of decaying, you know, feminine accoutrement mm -hmm. <laughs> and um it, you know and her her flesh and her like cellulite is all of his paintings have the impression of not all but most have the impression of decaying flesh and mm -hmm. it, you know it's very moving in the ida portrait um but mm -hmm. like it makes him the perfect choice to paint the decaying soul of right gray <laughs> so, mm -hmm. anyway Again, and so it's a burst of Technicolor in two different shots when you go to the portrait, which is very shocking when you're watching a whole movie in black and white. It really has a visceral, tactile impact because you're not expecting this hard cut to to this shocking portrait. It, it does the young one as well, and I'm forgetting the yeah. name. Shoot. Yeah, at the beginning. Of the, mm -hmm. It's the, a different artist. It's a different name? artist, and I didn't look it up. Sorry. <laughs> oh, damn. I did, and then I forgot to write it down. Um, but anyway, it's it's in some sort of it's in some Swiss art museum that, that also has a place of honor Creepy. in a museum, but in Switzerland. Um, shoot. Well, we'll have to look it up. But yeah. at any rate, it's a lesser painting, if you ask me. <laughs> um, but again, you get they want you first to be shocked by the lushness of the beauty of of Dorian Gray and just and and really make you feel it. And then, of course, you're going to be even more shocked when because there's all this you know not showing you the painting but having um dorian obsessively checking the painting which is locked in the attic so people won't realize what is happening um that he's staying artificially young while the painting ages and becomes horrifying so he's always staring at it but for the longest time we we're not allowed to look at it and and so he wants to burst upon your consciousness with extra um extra excitement and 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 horror Right. And it's really talked about as a horror film in a lot of um, in a lot of write ups on the film. It, because the portrait itself is terrifying. The Ivan Albright version mm. of. So there, yeah. you know, there are two just to I don't know if 
um, we might have been a little confusing. There are two portraits. You know, you first mm-hmm. see the one of young Dorian that that um, the Basil Hallward is the name of the painter in the film. And he paints young Dorian and he looks smooth and beautiful. And mm-hmm. then towards the end of the film, you get to see the decaying um, decrepit portrait by uh, Ivan Albright that illustrates Dorian's soul. And it is so scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really <Yes>. scary. <laughs> and these images yes. are, they're in glorious technicolor. And I was just so impressed by the ballsiness of this film that it even, I thought like an old movie version of Dorian Gray might not show the image. I thought they might try to skirt that because how mm-hmm. could you possibly, you know, in a novel you can suggest without right. having to be so literal and really risk ridiculousness. Mm-hmm. Um, but they risked it and they won. <laughs> if you yeah. <laughs> and it's, and it's so unusually bold for MGM, which usually shied away from, Horror was not an MGM thing, with rare <laughs> exceptions. One, one being the notable Freaks, which they practically had a heart attack when they, when they realized what Todd Browning had done. But that's yeah. another story. Um, they, you know, they did heartwarming family, you know, fair, um, like the Andy Hardy films. They did gorgeous, wonderful musicals, but they just tended to, they tended, you know, Louis B. Mayer was obsessed with his mother, so it was a lot of mother love stuff. <laughs> they, they, they just didn't, t- you know, Universal owned horror, and, you know, they tended not to like, they tend to try to be very classy. In fact, art for art's sake was their motto. Yes. Which got got them mocked an awful lot. <laughs> I was the artist as it was yes. some Latin saying, which it was not, by the way. That's a, uh, right, right. Made up. <laughs> so, That's the brilliance of Hollywood in a nutshell. Really is. <laughs> Who says we can't? We just turn it into a Latin phrase, and everyone will buy it. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So anyway, anyway, so it's especially shocking if you know the MGM aesthetic, which was fairly distinct. You know, they had all the money in the world. They were the richest studio in Hollywood. They had all they had, you know, a lock on the most of the major stars. And everything was supposed to be at this pristine level of classiness and wholesome values. And to have them go for Dorian Gray in a way that they in such a way that they imaginative way that they do is, is, is startling, very startling. So it's very, very satisfying that way. And there really is a creepy, eerie air to the whole film. At the same time, there's a tremendous glamour, which seems exactly right. It really seems to be an indication that somebody got wild in an important way. Because the novel has the same quality. It's often discussed in terms of, well, here's where Oscar Wilde, quite interestingly, seems to offer up a cautionary tale on the very topics that he himself embraced. Mm -hmm. So this, you know, all out for all out for pleasure, all out for art, all out for all, all of these things all of a sudden are shown to have, you know, these dire consequences that you would almost expect to see in a, in a, in a highly moral melodrama that there's going to be this huge price to pay in terms of soul and consequences for others and all of these things that you don't tend to associate with with wild. Um, He did that all the time. He was always (laughs) taking the other tack just when you weren't expecting uh, him to, but but nevertheless, when you're reading it, it's such a delightful read and it has such a hypnotic power. And and certainly there's some part of you that wants to be Dorian. Oscar Wilde admitted he himself wanted to be Dorian. He, <laughs> he talks about how he thought he really was pretty much like the painter Basil Hollowell, who worships the beauty of, of Dorian and feels like he's put so much of his soul into that painting that for he doesn't want to exhibit it publicly. Mm-hmm. So he, he says, I'm, I'm really like Basil, the artist. Mm-hmm. But people think I'm like Lord Henry, 
mm-hmm. you know, the cynic and bad influence and epigram slinger. <laughs> but I really wanted to be Dorian, <laughs> the absolutely heartbreakingly beautiful um, young man who whose beauty and youth lends fascination to absolutely everything he does. Um, so that's kind of heartbreaking and wonderful when you watch it to think of it. But they really seem to have conveyed that really yeah. well, I think. I mean, it's fun to be bad. <laughs> it's so fun to be bad. And you made a good point. We were talking about this earlier and you said, well, doesn't everyone want to be the vampire? Right. <laughs> Even though it's supposedly such a terrible fate <laughs> to have to live forever, forever sucking blood. And you're, but everybody knows, is it? Is right. it really? Right. No, <laughs> you want to be the vampire for sure. Of course, you get to look great, you know, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> forever. And you, I, forever. Yeah. And just cultivate your tastes. I mean, Dorian Gray mm-hmm. has a lot in common with vampire vampires obviously absolutely right and he's shot to look you know they they they're also again the the herd hatfield casting which often gets dismissed as you know it's not a good performance it's too monotone it's too this too that he absolutely captures in this wonderfully glacial mannequin like way not only this kind of beauty he has amazing bone structure but there's this just slight hint of like the skull under the skin in certain angles he really so true there's like a deathly quality to him. Yes. Um, almost immediately after, which makes sense. The first thing they try to make him look as lush and lovely as they can. But later you really become conscious of very artful lighting to make you aware that, oh, there's something wrong. And he seems frozen. He does a wonderfully frozen style of delivery, exactly. which I think is what people complain of, the monotony. There's a, there's a scene where he's being charged by Basil with, with all of his rumored crimes of destroying people's lives. People are committing suicide. I mean, it's, and he says things like, am I my brother's keeper? And he says it in a complete flat voice as if something in him has frozen, you know, because his, his life went into the, some aspect of his soul went into the painting and he's missing something, which is very smart choice, but it's often people are clueless and literal and you know, know. they'll be like, eh. oh, yeah, he, he's perfect. I, don't, <laughs> I just, yeah. I adore. And you're so right. He's got that like death's head moth thing. Mm-hmm. Just like, absolutely big hollow eye sockets. And <laughs> yes, <laughs> that they take full advantage of in the lighting and cinematography is gorgeous. Just, it's just a model of what you can do with film. I mean, we haven't talked about Angela Lansbury in a, an impossible role as Sybil Vane. Oh my God. Where she's supposed to represent kind of Victorian purity and maidenhood, which is the worst role anyone ever had to play. It's the one, you know, Lillian Gish always played. It's impossible. And she's such a genius. And she's so beautiful when she's young. And they light her so artfully and wonderfully and dress her and everything is so well, so perfectly done that she pulls it off. I, I still think it over. I don't know how she does it. Like I... I just, you know, so she's blonde and she's lovely, but I I don't know how other people think about Angela Lansbury. I don't think about her as a sex pot in particular. No, no one does. In fact, no one thinks of her as good looking. Even if you look at those early movies and go, she's really good looking, but you have a tone of surprise in your voice. Why? Because her acting is so brilliant. It actually distracts from her looks. This is unheard of, practically. Yes. Usually in film, beauty Physical, your physical attributes, if you're beautiful, always over to look at poor Jean Tierney. No one thought she could act because she was so gorgeous. But she's wonderful in certain films. Mm-hmm. Um, but Angela Lansbury is the opposite, where you're like, I hardly notice she's good looking because she's so brilliant <laughs> she's <laughs> and convincing. 
I, I, I don't know. She gives this girl a, like this inner strength and intelligence mm-hmm. and you actually care what happens to her. And they've given her the dumbest storyline. They changed it. No. Oh, yeah. Know, in the book, it's wonderful and like much more Wildean because Dorian Gray goes to the theater to watch Sybil Vane, who is a, she's a, she stars in Shakespearean roles in this low down, um, you know, sort of very trashy, uh, like melodrama theater. It, it sounds like, mm-hmm. um, And he brings Lord Henry with him and Basil, his friends, and he's mortified because she, when he goes to see her, she, you know, she's not performing the same way she was because she's so in love with him. So her performance suffers a bit and he's enraged with her because she has Mm -hmm. performed badly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he says, without your art, you are nothing. Yes. (laughs) And she has just said movingly, you know, I couldn't perform these. I suddenly became conscious of being costumed and the artifice of, of saying these lines, which she's always done brilliantly just brilliantly before that's why he falls in love with her Mm -hmm. and that it's out of her love for him that she's claiming i discovered kind of my authentic self and it made all that so hollow and false (laughs) so it really takes the the wildian obsession with there is no there is no authentic self and sort of hands it back to her (laughs) and makes the you know it should all be art and artifice kind of monstrous in it's the cruelest moment of course that that's that sets dorian gray on his really what's supposed to be is a very, very evil um, trajectory. This is his first great sin is that he is that he throws her over because she's no longer an artist. And so he can't care anything about her and she kills herself. Right. So so clearly they have no confidence in the film that they could pull that one. (laughs) So, which they could have, it's Angela Lansbury. She's a great, great actress. She totally could have done it, but instead they make it about typical, you know, sexual virtue. And she's such a figure of, um, you know, again, maidenly perfections that, you know, Lord Henry encourages Dorian Gray to tempt her by asking her to stay overnight in his, in his, you know, in his evil mansion. And, and it's supposed to be a test. She's supposed to prove her virtue by refusing him. But of course he's so cold and horrible. He's not even going to see her to the door and she can't bear to lose his love. So she comes back and then he throws her over for being, you know, actually unvirtuous and she kills herself so that's the that's the movie story yes and it it works in its own way because he it does performs this test of virtue at the behest of lord henry um Mm -hmm. who you know says uh, and in a way you i mean it's consistent with dorian's character that he would test you know those Mm -hmm. he's interested in 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 sick and perverse ways so that Mm -hmm. works but you're right it's you know it's so much more banal a test of a woman's virtue you know who cares yeah Again, the the beauty of Angela Lansbury is that like yes. she makes this interesting. Like, how did you do that? <laughs> I know it's so amazing. She makes she makes melodrama as fresh as if it were eighteen fifty, and you were at a stage show and you were yeah. cheering the hero and booing the villain. She's so good. She does this beautiful thing where where she gets the letter from him rejecting her, and she just goes into a, a kind of fugue state. And she's still moving and doing all the things, you know, looking at the letter, putting it down slowly. But she does she does so beautifully the experience of going into a state of shock that you can't quite identify yet what it's done to you. And then that, that it's in completely in keeping with her suicide. She supposedly leaves with her mother. You you hear you hear about it later. Mm-hmm. She leaves with her mother, or she's about to leave and says, Oh, I forgot something back in the dressing room. And she goes back up and and what she drinks, you know, some horrifying poison. Mm-hmm. Um, but she does ex- exactly that delayed reaction makes sense given the way she's seen her perform. The, the moment of shock. Oh, so well. She's so good. And she's so sensitive as a performer. 
Yes. That you just feel everything with her as if it were fresh, which it by no means is by this, even by the 40s, it's, it's old, oh, old. <laughs> you know, it, each close-up has like three beats. They're like mm-hmm. distinct states of mind that you pass through mm-hmm. with her. I, I just like, I can't say enough about her. She's, yeah. she's a marvel. She was great as a teenager. She was always great. Oh, she, she wins an Oscar for Gaslight, which is her, I think her film debut. She's 17. Just she plays the fun. slutty parlor, the delightfully slutty parlor maid. She's so good. Yeah. What is that? 42, 43? Just I can't remember. Before this. It's early 40s. I'm just forgetting. Okay. I, yeah. So, but, yeah. God, like, check it out for Angela Lansbury. Oh, um, if, if for no other reason. But the whole movie's a mind blower, really. If you can get into the right mental mode, which some people some people can't when it's an old film, especially in black and white, they're like, whatevs. Right. But this one really bears you know uh what repeat viewing and a lot of attention paid and it's very sophisticated in in again an unusual way especially for mgm which tended to be suspicious of intellect <laughs> you know very true. art very true. you know things like that yeah uh so yeah go oh go ahead sorry i interrupted you oh no no i was just well i was gonna segue into a couple more things that are sort yes. of kind of intriguing differences between the book and the film the first mm-hmm. is they so the, in you know in the book the magic of the portrait is unexplained mm-hmm. there you know just for some reason <laughs> dorian gray wishes it the portrait ages and he doesn't um and that's enough um the, the film introduces a curious middleman which is <laughs> and a hat statue, which presumably mm-hmm. is, you know, the sort of talisman of an Egyptian cat god, um, uh-huh. who's like in the room when Dorian wishes not to grow old, and this mm-hmm. this cat appears in the portrait. Um, yes. It's it's foregrounded in you know all the shots in Dorian's home, mm-hmm. um, pretty much throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what else, Eileen? There is there's a poem that a poem yeah. Dorian reads. It's about it's a be- kind of beautiful, you know, descriptive snatch of you know, some hauntingly gorgeous cat, and it's literally just to bring the cat in again, <laughs> as if you were going to forget the explanation. And then it's attributed to a brilliant young poet named Oscar Wilde, <laughs> so they get a little extra meta in this moment. Yeah, yeah. I love. It's a little, you know, it's like a classic Hollywood crypto racism. It's like the only way to explain <laughs> this is some dark magic from Africa. Um, yes, exactly. And you know, there's also like a what a Javanese dance company that happens. Yes. At some point in some when you're room. when you're getting to peak decadence that even that even when he's hosting a respectable party, he's got a Javanese dancer. Yeah. Up in the front. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And the Orientalism is like really heavy-handed. I mean, yes. Mm-hmm. It, it is woven throughout Wilde's novel, but Dorian's decor is almost exclusively, um, you know, from Asia, um, mm-hmm. various places, South South Asia, China, wherever. Mm-hmm. So th- that's definitely a sort of explanation for the weird mm-hmm. magic, you know, around yes. the painting. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Whatever. Um, but just but just the insistence on having to have an explanation is very classical Hollywood narrative. Yeah. Pretty much at, it, at its weakest. <laughs> Not only do you have to do it once, you have to do it several times because people were allowed to come in late at the movies. So you, you wanted to make sure it was explained again midway and explained again somewhere else. God, yeah, absolutely. That was very typical. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah. I have just one more thing to say about this. The mm. shout out to I have a friend Robert Alford um, who uh, also used to be at Berkeley. But we had we were always saying we're going to write a paper called Crypto Egypto. <laughs> we had a thesis that like anytime anyone is Egyptian in classical Hollywood, what it means mm-hmm. is like they're crypto queer. And <laughs> I think Dor- the picture of Dorian Gray like bears this out. So. You know, in every biblical narrative, the Egyptians are always sort of the decadent aristocrats. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always allied with some kind of like sexual perversion. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. so this, this would be my queer theory diagnosis. Um, it's just Hollywood like sort of like, you know, ladling on the, the crypto queer symbolism. <laughs> so, <laughs> Right. That's, oh, and let's, well, we can't forget, though, to talk about the what we suspect is the Vivian Lee portrait from Gone with the Wind. Oh, my God. As Scarlet, and it's not only as Scarlet, it's Scarlet at her most decadent when she becomes Mary's Rhett Butler, mostly for his money, and gets a huge portrait of Dunover, and there's a smaller version of it, apparently, on the wall in the background, especially behind Lord Henry. Yes. Okay, to be perfectly clear, so I, I, it is not the exact portrait that hangs in Scarlet and Red mm-hmm. um, place in Atlanta, but it's a very simple <laughs> pose, and I swear to God that's Vivian Lee. So I oh no, it looks like her. It looks very much like it. I recognize it. Me like nope, that's the pose at the very least. It's distant enough you can't quite for sure. I couldn't anyway tell if it was her face, but I guess you could. Okay, let's post this for the film suck listeners. I have taken okay. photos. I like got as close Good. as I with my stupid phone because it won't let me screenshot it. I guess that's their like uh-huh. you know protections. Um and y'all Yeah, any other Vivian Lee cultists out there? Because that's another way Dolores and I bonded, both yeah. obsessed with Vivian Lee. It's it's a thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very much a thing and like we're warning mm. in advance this will recur this theme but <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah start a drinking game over that perhaps yes. yeah <laughs> Either way, so uh, you know mgm obviously you know gone with the wind is made at selznick studios mm. and but mgm did distribute it and the mm. both dorian gray and gone with the wind have the same art director cedric gibbons who you know mm. directs everything in mgm um yeah so maybe cedric was like you know i have this version of right. Was just okay. up on the wall. I don't know. Um, oh no, I think it would be totally different. They were always repurposing. And there's always a little thrill. It's one of the thrills for for people who know too much, who are connoisseurs yeah. of of a certain era of and type of film, say. And you know, an example for 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 me is how much Val Luton, because they were broke, had to repurpose RKO sets, costumes, everything else from other movies. Yeah. So you're seeing the staircase from Magnificent Ambersons which if you know Magnificent Ambersons is a, is a very dark <laughs> and dysfunctional staircase gets repurposed in cat people. And so it ad- adds a kind of meta shiver to see that same dark wood kind of formidable staircase appear. And it's also used to evoke a kind of shiver. Um, so that kind of thing can get, if you really want to, you know, get into the details, let's say, <laughs> yeah. can be, you know, one of the exciting aspects of being a big film devotee. It's it's great and I one always a thrill. It, always a thrill and for <laughs> and for our fellow nerds for no reason uh, Dawood <laughs> and Peter Lawford are in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a real part of like you know the the more typical MGM. They've got young contract player stars or would um, about to be stars. Yeah, and they need more what they need more wholesomeness. So there's these two wholesome, good looking young people 
who are late in Dorian's life and represent, you know, he's going to, he's going to try to go straight basically, so to speak, um, and be Mary Donna Reed, who has long loved him. She's, a, she's, yeah, she's supposed to be the daughter of the painter Basil. Yeah. And, and, and the, the Peter Lawford plays the the boyfriend uh, who's jealous of um, Dorian Gray and, and actually winds up ferreting his, out his secret in the end out of jealousy. And so there's, the, and they're very banal. I mean, if you want to see what an artist Angela Lansbury is in playing a, a virtuous young woman and playing it wonderfully. Look at Donna Reed, who's <laughs> playing the same thing, but it's like, well, she sure is pretty, but. Mm. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's so true. They, especially Donna Reed, at least Peter Lawford has his accent to hide something. Yeah, he always had his charming accent to rely yeah. on. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like lapses into some sort of like, um, I don't know, not exactly down home, but some like 1940s urban slang. Like, like there's some very like 1890s drawing room society and every yeah. now and again she'll have a, a line like I sure hope X, Y, and Z and you're just like put in there to have some i don't know just someone with whom the audience could identify because god yeah. knows like <laughs> i always think students who are always like well you know like i i could identify with them like you know they're relatable i'm like no one's mm -hmm. hashtag relatable in the picture of dorian gray <laughs> and that's, that's why it's amazing so <laughs> right 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 exactly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that that is a delightful part. But it, it and let me see if we've skipped any of the points before I go to the obsession with portraits that I have and how great portraits in films are and how much they appeared in films of the 40s. I think it's a great time to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole phenomena which and I for, I was having trouble remembering it, but then I remembered of course that you know our our mutual friend Asali gave me this wonderful book. That's called the Dark Galleries, a museum guide to the paint uh, to the painted portraits in film noir, gothic melodrama, and ghost stories of the 1940s and 50s. Admittedly, I only recommend it to those of you who are also fellow nerds and you really want to read you know, <laughs> museum expert comments on all of these paintings. That that and there are so many of them. It's a whole book. You know, some of the more famous ones are, of course, Laura. Uh, famous mm -hmm. film noir really built around a portrait of Jean Tierney that that had and again very they're very smart about these things you know the Laura portrait is so memorable because it isn't really a painted portrait well it is but it but it really is a photograph of Jean Tierney that they've treated <laughs> with varnish and painterly effects right. so it has this kind of um, you know this kind of mysterious quality just as an object of like, what is that? Is that really a painting kind of thing? Um, uh, the Woman in the Window, another great film noir um, um, by Fritz Lang, um, centers on a portrait of a woman. And then, you know, to double the impact, it's in a window, a man is gazing admir admiringly in it. And then the image of the woman appears in the glass because mm -hmm. she's behind him. Mm -hmm. Look, so her ghostly superimposed current, you know, image appears over the portrait. Um, Rebecca, of course, has a portrait that's not Rebecca. It's very complex the way it's it's an ancestress of Maxim de Winter, but the costume is his favorite ancestress. And supposedly the costume is, is worn both by Rebecca, the late Rebecca, and by the new wife. So there's all these kind of complex uses 
Um, there's what what's in the ghost movie, The Uninvited. Um, there's a portrait. It's it's one of the celebrated uh, movies of of well, you can't even call it kind of closeted lesbianism because it's really overt in this 1940s film. And there's a huge, you know, ridiculously admi- ro- romantic um, portrait of of the one of the ghost women, um, Mary Meredith, mm-hmm. that's worshipped by um, a woman who was her closest friend in life. Um, and you can just go down a huge long list of all of you know gas uh, not yeah gaslight. There's a central there's a central portrait mm-hmm. of the aunt who is murdered, and it's the niece played by Ingrid Bergman who is being threatened with murder. Yeah, should I do a spoiler alert? Also being threatened with murder, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for the same reason. So you get a very Freudian um, kind of repetition of mother figure as mother figure daughter figure going through these kind of same. Um, you know, tortured, uh, you know, sexual identity um, um, kind of traumas. Right. Um, so, yeah, I could list a million of them. But Dorian Gray, of course, is considered one of the most important and is all, you know, is, of course, talked of almost first. Yes. Well, it, I mean, maybe it's a way to lead us back to our question about mm. what, you know, what is what is the role of art <laughs> in the yeah. in, in I for lack of I've been saying modern times but for me that just Mm -hmm. means kind of like a time where art is not yoked to religion Mm -hmm. um and art is not literally politics you know um and but as people who which doesn't mean that art is not political i I think it is Mm -hmm. but i think that there's a problem with thinking of art as just uh, as synonymous with political expression um, mm-hmm. I think when that happens, then you get bad art and oftentimes worse politics. If we want to talk mm-hmm. about, you know, fascism, <laughs> mm-hmm. which, which a lot of people, you know, Benjamin would ta- say is the aestheticization of politics. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I don't know what, I, I don't even know what Oscar thinks, but what's so wonderful about the, the picture of Dorian Gray is that it's, it gets to be highly ambiguous. You would think you know, as we say on the surface, this is a cautionary tale. Um, it mm-hmm. would think that you should not invest in in art or beauty, um, certainly not youth. Um, or the ult- ultimate pleasure. Pleasure is the ultimate pursuit. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ultimately, pleasure may not be the ultimate pursuit. I think... But it should be one. Exactly. <laughs> Let's put it back, people. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. It's, you know, it's a, we could think of pleasure as a practice that, you know, feeds you, broadens your mind, like all of these things, like gives you the opportunity to pay attention in a way that you can't in, in your sort of everyday duties. Um, so I don't know, you know, I hate to, well, you know, Oscars is really, you know, sometimes you can't go by, he'll say some extreme thing and then take it back or, or undermine it himself. You know, it's very, he's very hard to pin down, but he does say, I think it's in the, the Decay of Lying, the, the essay, that something like art should only refer to itself. We've gone all wrong by having art try to convey, be slavishly attached to the quote unquote real. The real mm-hmm. He hates the, the, the realist movement. Right. And he even, he even argues that it shouldn't be attached to nature, which seems, Water. you know, because Andy, he, he winds up, but he he's kind of softens that by suggesting it can only portray an artistic rendering of nature. You know, you start seeing nature, in other words, in terms of the art movement that you're in at the time. Mm-hmm. That tells you. So there's a kind of art intercession between us and the world, ideally, that should, if anything, be strengthened. And art should talk about 
art and then life and he, he's the one who argues life you know life imitates art what, yeah life yeah. imitates art <laughs> yes. people start dressing the way or trying to look the way they're seeing representations in the world and certainly we see that happen all the time that's that 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 seems manifestly true absolutely um, yeah um so and that's that we can relate to that to the portrait obsession in 40s films because it does seem like you get an awful lot it's a great era of filmmaking if you ignore the worst of the jingoistic World War II stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the war films, those ultra patriotic films, those are often terrible. But there's just some great art art movements that go on that seem to be to involve themselves in art in a way that's exciting in 40s films. So and having the portraits there seem part of it, seem mm -hmm. part of of that whole preoccupation with haunting represent self representation at a very higher level. That can yeah. often seems like it takes over, it has more power than the person themselves. Laura is a great example. Yes. You know, the detective who's in love with the portrait and then there's Laura walks in and she's got a, it's out of the rain and she's got a droopy rain hat on. And, you know, she isn't as magical as her portrait. Of course, it's Jean Tierney, so she's going to become magical. Yes. <laughs> but, but that the portrait has all this eerie power. Um, that seems to be be more than the power of the person who's who's you know trying to fight their little battles in life. Yeah, um, gets represented over and over. You'll never have more classical music played at you than I swear <laughs> to God in forty films. Somebody's constantly sitting down at a piano <laughs> and just knocking off some Chopin or whatever, as happens in Picture of Dorian Gray. He plays, yep. you know, isn't it Chopin's yep. Prelude that he keeps playing? Yeah, yeah, that happens all the time. You've got Oscar Levant, you know, wandering through films, um, you know, and you'll just stop the whole movie to have him play some damn concerto, and that's just a norm. Right, that's just normal. At a certain period in Hollywood history, a tremendous interest in bringing in the other arts. You know, Michael Powell of Powell and Pressburger, who made a lot of great British films in the in the 30s, 40s, into the 50s, you know, wanted to argue that all art was one and that cinema was the art that could make use of that did make use of every other art. And if we conceived it that way, we'd have the greatest art that ever was. So yeah. that was why he would make, you know. Red Shoes, um, Tales of Hoffman, you know, he'd have opera and, you know, he films out about and, you know, using and inspired by opera, ballet, etc. There would be tremendously talented painters working on the sets, the decor. Mm -hmm. um, so this he had this exploding idea of how exciting it was going to be to have the ultimate art and all of these artists from various fields subsumed within it that didn't get enough traction, if you ask me. Yeah, uh, no, we're still in a kind of path of deadly realism, mostly. Mostly. You're so right. And that's, you know, it's back to the conversation about not condescending to people. Like, mm -hmm. you can appreciate something like the picture of Dorian Gray on a million levels. You could be just like kind of delighted to be creeped out. Um, mm -hmm. You could be someone who has no idea that that's Chopin being played, but you might be right. moved or think it's interesting or, you know, you understand how it adds to the mood of the scene. You know, we don't have to we don't have to think of the mass of the population as stupid. <laughs> like people, mm -hmm. even if they don't know names or the provenance of, you know, some, mm -hmm. some of these ob objects of art, um, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. It, you know, that the fact that MGM was, uh, just thought that, you know, uh, was brave enough to let this all wash over people, um, mm -hmm. is something that I think we've lost in a sort of like massive dumbing down of, of culture. 
I'm, I'm yeah, and a, col- a collapse I'm- of ambition, and and also we don't make. We're getting to the point that we make enough content again that you'd think it would be getting better. Well, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I've often thought it's just out of sheer desperation, and all of these talented people who want <laughs> who are, who are drawn by the lure of of money that you know you get so many great films you get a ton of dreck out of the old studio system but they were just pumping out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of films a year and the and the pressure to produce and be innovative and call attention to yourself drove so many great effects oh. that, and i'm not sure why it doesn't seem to do that as much at least to me it doesn't it's not like everything's terrible but it's just like it's a lot less daring yes than some of the movies you would see then and i'm often like is it because everyone was doing a lot more drugs even though we don't think that now oh so much there was especially in the early year there was so much over-the-counter drug taking yeah it's like hmm. <laughs> I mean, a lot of surreal visions uh in old cinema i i'm with you and that's why that why the podcast is called film suck you know i <laughs> I think we could all name about 50 brilliant films from 1945. I could barely think of two films that I thought were brilliant from 2019 or 2020. So I, I'm with you. Oh, every time people come up with these extensive best film lists every year and I'm looking at them going, are you kidding? How can you come up with that many? I'm usually, I was down to like two at one point And when I said, I'm not doing these anymore. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I, can't, I can't lie and say that all of these movies, they are not great. Again, because people worship subject matter, I swear to God. It's like, well, this is a very important film about blur. And I'm just like, yeah, but film itself is not, the film itself is not exciting. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, (laughs) maybe. We're starting, should we stop on that downer note? There's There's still things that come out that pop out and great, but we're here to try to argue for why it should all be better. There you go. We should all demand more. Yeah, I mean, then we're getting critique is the first step, I guess. In, in we like to think so. I anyway. <laughs> make ourselves feel better, but and I mean, it's also fun to rip in. <laughs> really fun, and I mean, along the lines of curmudgeonliness, we'll be coming at you with some Fran Lebowitz next week. <laughs> She's mm-hmm. the curmudgeon of all time. She'll be bitching about New York City, how it's a longer <laughs> city, how you should pretend it's. I guess you got to pretend it's a city now. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> Fran Fran has a sort of Wildean view of things as well. So maybe we'll we'll continue on a sort of, I don't know. I like to think of us as cheerful curmudgeons, but... Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Uh, rollicking and hilarious are, are the words I like to use. Yes. We, we like to be funny about it anyway. Okay. <laughs> and high-spirited. Yes. Spirited. <laughs> well, I think we have threshed through pretty well, considering there's so much goddamn material. Indeed. Woo. And yeah, I, you know, we did not do an exhaustive list of Wild on Film. We, we watched... Mm importance of being earnest and we can talk about Mm -hmm. that some other time um Mm -hmm. and there you know there are many good good adaptations eileen watched wild starring stephen Mm -hmm. fry um i saw that back in the day myself and Mm -hmm. you know there's there's a ton to be mined on oscar and this is not an exhaustive (laughs) list yeah we just picked our favorite and ran with it because that's how we do (laughs) so (laughs) well thank you for listening come back again in a week um, because again, we're going to do a very special episode, which we'll occasionally do when it's demanded on the, um, the Martin Scorsese doc on Fran Lebowitz. And then it'll be again, two weeks after that. Um, but I hope you're, I hope you enjoyed it. And we're really thrilled about the, the new iteration of film suck 20. 20-